for the last few minutes of this sitting as part of the sitting. I'll lead a little guided meditation. If you'd like to make yourself a little bit more comfortable than you are, you're welcome to make an adjustment. I'm going to mention a few words. Sometimes I'll mention synonyms or close synonyms to go along with it. And as I say each word or each concept, let it kind of reverberate within you and see what associations you have with it. what feelings it might arise within you, memories, perhaps. And in particular, see what it evokes for you or see if you can evoke, evoke the state that the word is pointing towards. So the first concept is mindfulness, attentiveness, And the second concept is investigation, inquiry, insight.
The third is effort, engagement, applying oneself. energy. The fourth is joy, delight, exuberance. The fifth is tranquility or calmness, peacefulness. The sixth is concentration, collectedness, focus, And the seventh is equanimity, a balance of mind.
there is a tradition in Buddhism that these seven qualities are a kind of medicine to be evoked at times of illness and at other times as well. And I'll go through the list one more time. Keep your mind relaxed. Suspend all disbelief. And receive these words as seeds that somehow flower within. Allow the words to evoke something about this state within you. Mindfulness. Investigation. Effort. Joy. Tranquility. Concentration. Equanimity. These seven qualities are known as the factors of awakening. I could have almost asked another uh, or got get another kind of guided exercise and that is uh, to, to have asked you or asked you now uh, remember sometime when you were most when you woke up from a nap or woke up in the morning and perhaps you were really awake you woke up and maybe, maybe it took you a few minutes to wake up properly but you felt really kind of so awake that it just kind of like when the air in the Bay Area is completely clear and you can see across the bay. and It's so amazing to have that clarity and you've forgotten it's even possible. Wow. And so you realize that when things are really clear, there's nothing interfering. 
it's because he's not, there's nothing there. <laughs> Remember sometime you're really awake. What are some of the qualities that were present for you together with that wakefulness? How do you feel besides being very awake? Yes. Exuberant. Exuberant. Okay. Refreshed. Refreshed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Alive. alive. How does it how does it feel like to be alive? Full of energy. Full of energy. Okay. Yes. Tranquil. Tranquil. Certain kind of tranquility. Okay. Yes. Uh, sharpness or acuity of perception. Sharpness or acuity of perception. Limitlessness. Limitlessness. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Yes. Suspension of time. Suspension of time. Kindness towards the whole world. Kindness towards the whole world. Are we going to settle for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those? Or is, is, there isn't more? <laughs> The, um, so there certainly are states uh, that we experience that uh, where there are a lot of wonderful qualities, states of mind, states of being that come along with them. And wakefulness is one of them. And as I think many of you know, in the Buddhist tradition, um, being awake is one of the main goals or games uh, of the whole tradition. The whole point is to wake up the word uh, Buddhism comes from originally from the word Bodhi, or Buddha, which comes from the word Bodhi. And Bodhi means to wake up, to be awake. And I, I'm very fond of the word awake, um, almost as a substitute to mindfulness, that rather than becoming more mindful, uh, we're trying to be more awake to our experience. And for me, the connotations of being awake to our experience, awake to our breath, awake to our sensations, awake to the world around us, um, has, a, has a sense to it that um, our experience doesn't have to be different than what it is. You simply awake to it. And in that wakefulness, there's a kind of clarity, a kind of freedom, a kind of independence, a kind of so some of the qualities that you all described here uh, in relationship to what we're experiencing. Um, we're simply awake. Also, when you use the word awake, uh, in my mind at least, it comes along with a lot of other connotations and suggestions. It's a state of being that is somehow independent of what, what you're awake to, awake of. But there's this clarity, this wakefulness energy, this vitality, this joy, perhaps tranquility, perhaps some, some of these factors of awakening that come along with uh, the state of being um, you know, awake to the experience. And so the goal of practice is, can you be awake to this rather than mindful? Sometimes people use the word mindful, this kind of feeling of maybe sometimes bearing down or kind of pressure or trying to be cognitively aware or um, um, 
it sometimes kind of feels like a little bit too much activity of the mind to be mindful of this. But to be awake, I don't know if it's true for you, but for me, this has a suggestion of almost like yeah, I settle back, I relax, I become more open, more spacious to the experience, rather than trying to bear down to kind of see it more clearly exactly what it is, to be awake to what's there. So there are these, um, then this list called the seven factors of awakening. There's some indication uh, in the discourses of the Buddha that these were not original to the Buddha, that they pre-existed him, uh, him in, the, in his milieu, in his time in India. Other religious teachers or practice, practitioners knew about the seven factors of awakening. And I love it when we find out that certain uh, teachings of the Buddha that we nowadays associate with Buddhism, this is what the Buddhist Buddhists teach. Uh, at the time of the Buddha, this is not what the, uh, the Buddhists taught it, but it wasn't a monopoly. It wasn't only, only, only what the Buddhists taught. The other people taught it also. So I like that because it has a kind of universal quality to it then. It's not something that, um, you know, is only us or we have it or something. Um, now what I've been doing for the last couple of months is slowly going over a discourse of the Buddha called um, the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the establishing of mindfulness. Sometimes it's called the, uh, the foundation of mindfulness or the four foundations of mindfulness, which are given as the body, the feelings, the mind, the mind, and mind states or content of mind or something like that. These four... St- but... And it suggests itself, when you call it that way, uh, that uh, the place we, we establish mindfulness or the foundations of mindfulness are referring to things or nouns. But when you read the discourse itself, what's being referred to is not nouns, but rather processes. And the whole focus is learning to pay attention to processes that are going on. And the, the suggestion in Buddhism is that, the understanding is, that our full psychosomatic being, or all of life that we can experience, is constantly in process. It's always in movement. It's arising and passing. It's certain causes and conditions come together to allow it to arise. The causes and conditions pass, and it passes away. And we live in a world of causes and conditions and processes that are constantly in flux and moving. Some are quite slow. Uh, The rise and fall of mountains are pretty slow uh, relative to human life, but to other you know, time scales, it's pretty fast that the Sierras pop up and disappear, right? It only takes them 40 million years or something like that. It goes pretty quick. And um, But everything's in a process, is in movement. So part of what uh, Buddhist practice uh, entails is beginning to tune in to that process that makes up our experience of life. And so we pay attention to the process of our physicality, the physical experiences, our body is not a thing. Our body is a series of processes, sensations that arise and pass, that move and change and flux. Um, our activity of our body, our movement, is not a, you know it's not a thing. It's you know things that move. One of the jokes that I have with my little son, we talk about um, you know what happens to your fists when you open your hand, <laughs> or the lap when you stand up. Where does it go? Um, you know they're they're. I don't know if that relates exactly, but. Um, and um, so so a lot of this whole discussion of these last months is learning to pay attention to processes 
And in learning to pay attention to processes, processes, in a sense, call on us to be more mindful, more attentive. If we're going to be attentive to them, if we know them, we have to be attentive of them. And since they're moving and changing, we become aware, we train and develop our mindfulness in being aware of this flux and this change. We're now at the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is the foundation, that, that area of mindfulness where we develop that mindfulness with um, what's called dhammas, or the contents of the mind, or the qualities of mind. Those qualities of mind, those processes of mind, or inner processes, that come into play uh, and have a direct effect either on keeping us in states of suffering, keep us um, sad, or depressed, or angry, or hateful, or <coughs> somehow suffering, or those inner processes which move us towards greater freedom or wakefulness, or freedom from suffering, greater happiness. That suffering and happiness are also processes. And since they're processes, they're processes then which are affected by causes and conditions. And getting a sense of how causes and conditions bring about suffering and how causes and conditions bring about, bring about happiness or freedom is part of the... Uh, task of mindfulness practice. I've known people who've practiced mindfulness for a long time and hadn't gotten that message. And they had this idea that it was kind of like magical thinking. If they just sat down and closed their eyes and kind of in a general way was mindful of what was going on moment by moment, then magically they'd be transformed and changed in some way. And they sat for a long time and nothing happened. Uh, it's like, Or something happened, but not that much. Or like Ajahn Sumedho says, if sitting was where it was at chickens would be enlightened. <laughs> and uh, there is some, att- some attention given to beginning to understand what is happening there. So yesterday I talked about the difference between looking and seeing. Vipassana, which is the whole practice of mindfulness, it involves seeing clearly. But seeing isn't necessarily just a you know, the, picking up the raw data of what's happening in the moment by moment, even though many of us teachers, including myself, sometimes give that impression. But it's also being aware a little bit of the processes of how things arise and pass. Um, so with the hindrances that we talked about, being aware of how sensual desire arises because you've seen an ad for the next generation of palm pilots or whatever it is that, you know, excites you. And then the mind, because of that condition being there, and because of other conditions existing in your mind, what you, you know, what you, what palm pilots mean to your ego, perhaps, off the mind runs and it's caught in a cycles of desire, which involves a certain kind of suffering, can involve. And so you can be aware of that process. And if you're aware of that process of how to work, that works, then you can be aware in the future of how this might lead to suffering next time you see an advertisement. And since all of us have been around advertisements long enough, none of us succumb to advertisements anymore, do we? We have enough wisdom and clarity now. We see how it works. And we see the cause and conditions in our mind and how we grab on. And we've done it so many times that we've learned the lesson, right? Right? <laughs> um, but being aware of these processes. And um, the... Um, um, so that one of the processes for today, the focus today, is the seven factors of awakening. These are processes also. 
And there are these processes that are come into play as mindfulness gets stronger and um, as we get more awake to our experience. And this suggests, or says, that as a person, that first person says that Buddhist practice is a developmental, as a developmental model of spiritual growth. That, or, or spirituality is involves growth and cultivation and development of ourselves over time. There are forms of spirituality, forms of Buddhist spirituality even, which poo-poo any idea of change, of growth, of doing anything, engaging and cultivating ourselves in some way. They have, sometimes they, they have the, the expression of instant, not instant, but um, sudden enlightenment. Or they have this idea of the non-dual. It's not about, you know, it's very dualistic to be involved in you know, trying to get someplace or develop oneself. And rather you should wake up to this the non-dual reality which is right here. And they're very profound teachings this way. And I don't want to, you know, you know it all suggests any kind of criticism of them. But um, in the early teachings of the Buddha, it was very clear there was much more of a developmental model that um, goes along very much with uh, what we see in human beings. That even non-dual people, uh, as they get older, mature, hopefully. There's change and development that goes on over the years. Human beings are processes. We, are, we can't get away from the fact that we're processes. And, that fact that, and processes change and develop according to causes and conditions. The right causes and conditions come into play, then um, we develop in healthy ways. The wrong causes and conditions come into play, and we develop in unhealthy ways. And we can affect, we don't have to be the victims, we don't have to be uh, the puppets of causes and conditions influencing us. We can have something to say about which causes and conditions affect us and, and, and shape this process of who we are. And that's one of the fundamental teachings of the Buddha about karma, is that we can affect the processes of what shapes us. It doesn't mean we can have control over it, ultimate control, but we can have some effect over time. We can develop ourselves. So as, as so Buddhist spirituality is much more than just developing kind of accepting mindfulness of our situation as it is, but rather moving from states of being in suffering to states of happiness or well-being, or as maybe some, like Maslow talked about, uh, um, I don't know if peak experience is the right, right word here, but uh, to experiences of a great sense of well-being. So moving into great states of, of health, of psychological health, of well-being, of, of, um, of um, um, you know, maybe that's enough to say it that. And so these seven factors of awakening then are, are a description of some of the things that come into play as we move into the state of well-being psychological well-being. It doesn't have to be a permanent thing, you know, like, but rather, uh, some of it has to, is temporary because it comes together for causes and conditions, but it has a lot to do with what happens in really strong meditation practice. Is that at some point or other, these seven factors of awakening can kick in and um, they become stronger and stronger and they come begin almost to have a life of their own but they kind of, um, I don't know if take over is the right word, but maybe some of you have had the experience of, of learning some kind of skill or sport or something, maybe going running, or maybe running is a good example, but it could be many other things, where you know, initially it's kind of hard to do and there's resistance to doing it, and, um, and you'd rather not do it, and you're lazy, you're tired, you know, all the hindrances come up. 
But at some point, the body, the mind is conditioned, gets into it, gets into the flow of it. And qualities that are not necessarily... Some, some qualities being taken over. There's kind of a, a lightness, perhaps, or kind of engagement, a kind of a joy of being involved, of engaged. The body's running by itself almost. And, and it's kind of joy and happiness in that. And the mind is engaged in the activity. The mind's not thinking about yesterday or mind's not thinking about, you know, how wonderful it will be when you finally get to, you know, can run well. But the mind is now engaged in the process of running itself. Um, you're attentive. You're energetic. The energy seems to just flow kind of effortlessly in a sense. There's various processes within us that kick in and they have kind of effortless quality. Is it making some sense, what I'm saying here? So as we meditate, the same things can occur. Now it takes a certain amount of momentum and regularity of practice in doing meditation, and sometimes going, you know, to int- intensive uh, meditation retreats for some of the great fruits of this to occur. And they happen at different people at different times. There are some people who get some of these benefits uh, very quickly, and some people have the very slow tortoise approach, mm-hmm. and uh, it takes 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know who, why it is different for some people. Um, and sometimes it's better, the slow approach, as we know from the story, um, the tortoise and the hare. Um, but uh, when we start moving it, but start moving into the states of well-being and having these factors begin arising in the mind, arising in our body, and influencing who we are and influencing the course of the practice itself. Part of developing the seven factors of awakening is that helps to support them is recognizing their presence. And the suggestion is that the seven factors of awakening uh, are probably here more often than you realize. If you're uh, busy, engaged in life and focusing on the task at hand or in Palm Pilots and the next generation or whatever and obsessing about it, you might not notice that you're actually feeling quite good that day or maybe you're feeling kind of energetic or you're feeling kind of a little bit happy because you're so obsessing on getting that palm pilot or whatever it might be. There might be very easy to overlook subtle states of well-being that exists. Part of the way of developing greater states of well-being or supporting these seven factors is by recognizing their presence when they're there. Recognizing what brings them about. Recognizing what sustains them when they're there and recognize uh, when they're gone and what were the causes and conditions that made them go away. You feel you know, great joy and you're driving down 101 and there's an advertisement. And it all goes away. Everything. The advertisement is proof that you failed in your life. You're not going to make it anywhere. You know, you're not going to be able to get you know, whatever. Um... B2B, right? Isn't that the, as I, said, I don't see that so much anymore, but a year ago, there were a lot of B2B advertisements, business-to-business advertisements, software. It's interesting to watch the trends of advertisements, billboards over the, over the years. And about two years ago, it was uh, all about how great it is to make money. Was, you know, and they don't say that anymore. <laughs> and um, so you see this B2B sign and it says, you know, I must have chosen the wrong profession. How could I, how could I be such a failure? And there it goes. You rejoice, you know. So you see how that happens. And because you see it happened, you're not caught by it quite as much. So a lot of, you know, the, so a lot of this is beginning to catch what's going on, uh, uh, track what's going on, being mindful of what's going on as it's going on. There's a lot of understanding, a lot of wisdom that can come from that. 
And we can begin taking responsibility a little bit then for what is happening to us in the moment, of how we react to it, how we relate to it. Are there more helpful ways of reacting? Are we just going to be carried along um, victims, puppets of causes and conditions? So then mindfulness is a very important central aspect to all this and certainly to the Buddhist tradition. And so this discourse that we're talking about these months focuses on, on areas of ways to develop this mindfulness practice, this mindfulness. One of the ways to develop mindfulness is start paying attention to the seven factors of awakening as they arise in our experience. They will arise as meditation practice deepens. But they can also, as I've said, appear often in daily life in subtle ways or strong ways for whatever reasons. And then recognizing and appreciating their presence, their importance is very important. And to fuel them, to feed them a little bit um, is very important. If we do that with expectation or attachment or uh, judgment or, you know, there's all kinds of ways we can do that that causes more suffering. But there there are also healthy ways of relating to them that kind of lets them be there. So I'd like to read now this paragraph from the discourse on this section on the seven factors of awakening. By now, I think some of you could probably um, read it or just recite it on your own because it's, it's getting to be quite repetitive. But repetition has, in many spiritual traditions, has certain benefits. It, it lets it kind of sink in deeper, lets you take it in and, and kind of, um, you know. So this is what it says. Again, monks... A monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the seven enlightenment factors. And how does a monk abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the seven enlightenment factors? Here, there being the mindfulness enlightenment factor in her, the monastic understands there is mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. There's the factor of awakening of mindfulness in me. Or there is no mindfulness factor in me. Or one understands, um, or or there being no mindfulness factor, in, he or she understands there is no mindfulness factor in me. Or he or she also understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen mindfulness factor and how the arisen mindfulness factor comes to fulfillment by development. So you see how, how not only the arising of mindfulness, but how through the practice and cultivation, you see how that mindfulness gets stronger and stronger. There's a wonderful experience that happens in strong mindfulness practice that sometimes describes a snowball effect. Where you know you, th- you make a snowball and you're rolling it down the hill and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger on its own and faster and faster. Well, mindfulness has that quality also. That as you know, we have to do the initial effort, we have to get up the hill, we have to make a snowball, we have to kind of push it first, and first it's too small, and you have to kind of give it more pushes. And eventually, there's a snowball effect with mindfulness where something seemingly, the mindfulness gets stronger and stronger and stronger on its own. It's like you're downhill from there on. And you see the development, the strengthening of it as we go along. Um, and then, the, then this, the paragraph goes on and says the same thing for the other seven factors of awakening. So mindfulness is the first. The second is investigation. The third is effort or energy. The fourth is 
joy. The fifth is tranquility. The sixth is concentration. And the seventh is equanimity. Now, there's different ways of understanding these seven. Uh, Sometimes people will take them as a kind of hologram. They all arise together and they balance each other in various ways, interplay with each other. But there's one traditional way of seeing it is that their development, it's a developmental sequence. And you've, um, and this turns out that this is a quite classic, uh, movement in, uh, Buddhist spirituality to, to where our spiritual development follows certain stages or certain, certain factors or certain inner states develop in sequence to each other. So you might listen a little bit to that sequence. Mindfulness is the foundation of it all. It said that mindfulness has, in a sense, no cause and condition. Exactly, it's not the right thing to say, but that um, mindfulness. There's no, no no basis for mindfulness except by being mindful. So you just got to cultivate your mindfulness. You just got to apply. How do you, how how do you be mindful? By being mindful, by paying attention, <coughs> by doing it. As we cultivate the mindfulness, that lends itself. That's a base or support for investigation, for seeing more deeply, to begin seeing rather than just looking. And seeing, investigating, is not just taking the surface of uh, what's given as given, but beginning to understand the process element of what's going on, to begin to understand the cause and conditions, to begin... There's many ways of understanding that are, are much more than just looking. We have the expression in English, oh, I see. Someone says, look over there. And then you say, oh, I don't see anything. Or I do see something. Or I see what you mean. Seeing uh, is more than just looking. There's a kind of a penetration or a, it's perception plus a certain kind of understanding that goes together with seeing. So the investiga- investigative uh, aspect is that part of the mind is looking to see more deeply, to clearly comprehend what this experience is, is right now in this moment, to investigate what's happening. I think of investigation as a normal human faculty. You see it in children. Uh, they seem very inquisitive. Uh, they just kind of, my little baby, who's one years old, picks up, you know, the most common object, you can, household objects you can imagine, and will stand mes- spend a time mesmerized investigating, what is this thing here? And I think as adults, we don't, you know, behave exactly in the same way. But um, certainly there are times when, we, you know, investigation is quite strong. When I was um, introduced to Vipassana in uh, Thailand, I did this long retreat, and near the end of the retreat, my uh, Thai teacher took me to a funeral of a Thai general. I'm not sure why he took me to, you know, why I left the retreat to go to this funeral, but there we were. And um, it was all in Thai, and it was very gaudy and glitzy, and, you know, it was, you know, and... um, and so I was sitting there, and I was really bored. And um, after a while, I thought, wait a minute. Boredom is suffering. There must be a better way, another way. I've just been doing all these weeks of Vipassana practice. Why don't I just pay attention? <laughs> and, uh, and suddenly, I just started paying attention, investigating, investigating what was going on, the sounds and the colors and the activities. And I didn't understand anything much what was going on. But just the quality of investigation was awakened in me. And there was, you know, that was enough to keep me from being bored. And there I was engaged in what was going on. 
it's said that investigation is a good foundation for effort. If we're inquiring or curious, then there's kind of effort or energy that arises to apply ourselves, to look more deeply, to be engaged in the practice of what's going on. Without some application of ourselves in the practice, there is no spiritual life. And again, this magic thinking, oh, if I should read enough Dharma books, something will happen to me. It'll be great. And, um, but, you know, you can't just read Dharma books. You have to actually apply. It to the, the, the spiritual life is a life to be lived. And if it's a life to be lived, you have to apply yourself in some way. And the question is, in how do you apply yourself? In what way? Do you apply yourself just once a day in meditation? Do you apply yourself in your conversations with the people at work? Do you apply yourself... Uh, when you go shopping, do you, where do you apply yourself in a spiritual way? The suggestion is it's a life, and it's your whole life. Someone once said, um, you're, 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 you're asking the wrong question if you're asking, um, um, how can I bring spirituality more into my life? And rather, you should ask the question, uh, how can I bring my life more into my spiritual practice? It has a little bit to do with your priority, right? So the application, the energy, the effort. The, then the, then the, the effort is directly connected to joy because probably you had the experience of being wonderfully engaged, lost in engagement perhaps, in some activity you're somewhat skilled at or really you know, enjoyed. <laughs> Um, if you're really engaged, applying yourself in, in a wholehearted way, it tends to bring a certain kind of joy. And that kind of joy varies quite a bit from time to time and situation to situation. But some kind of delight, perhaps, or contentness, or sense of well-being, um, exuberance, uh, rapture at times. There's a whole range of kind of happiness that can happen. Then, very interestingly, in this sequence, the Buddhist tradition suggests that uh, based on some sense of well-being, joy, there can arise a healthy kind of tranquility. That tranquility follows on the basis of well-being. So we're looking for a sense of well-being as a foundation for further practice. Now, there's plenty of times when we don't feel well, a sense of well-being. We feel miserable or suffering a lot. And then it's very important not to measure yourself against some standard of you're supposed to feel good and feel joyful and that artificially you make yourself that way, but rather have the wisdom of how to bring mindfulness to feeling awful or bad or depressed or whatever and to hold that in a non-judgmental way, in a useful way, um, and not expect that it should be any different. But this is what it is now. This is the process. I mean, this is what I'm called on to pay attention to now. Um, but there are times then when that shifts and there's a sense of well-being that arises. And knowing that we can cultivate that, that it's appropriate to let that arise, can be very helpful because there are times when we can influence a little bit the arising of well-being within us. There's only so much you can do, but there's things you can do to help that. I mean, very simple things. I mean, this example I give a lot is when I lived in San Francisco and come, da- come down to Palo Alto, um, I would drive on 280 rather than 101 because it was very clear to me I would feel better when I arrived going down the beautiful, you know, you know, very small thing that I could do. There are things that we can do that can, you know, and if you know that having a sense of well-being is important for your spiritual life, then maybe you're more interested to kind of support that more often in your life, to make it happen more often.
So a sense of well-being leads to tranquility. A sense of calmness, a serenity, or peacefulness. Sometimes it can be understood as not being in conflict with oneself anymore, in conflict with the world. Um, I like the I like the idea that mindfulness is a, a practice of non-violence. To have a non-violent relationship to whatever arises in the moment is part of the spirit of mindfulness. You have some ugly thought, and the idea is to have a non-violent non-violent awareness of that ugly thought. I like it. I like the word non-violent these days better than acceptance, which is kind of you know, used a lot in our tradition. I talk a lot about it. That we're trying to develop accepting awareness, accept whatever is arising. But, but it suggests a little bit kind of complacency or condoning of the experience. But to be nonviolent to it. it means not to be in conflict with what arises. But you might still have discernment about, you know, in various ways about it. So based on a uh, sense of well-being and then tranquility, it's a lot easier to develop concentration, to have a focus. Uh, the word for concentration is samadhi. And samadhi means, it's actually probably mistranslated as concentration because samadhi is a state rather than a one-pointedness. So based on a sense of tranquility or not being in conflict with oneself and the world, it's a lot easier than to collect the mind, collect our body and mind, so the whole, we're composed on what we're focusing on. So all of us is is focused and we're not fragmented, don't have the various... uh, centrifugal forces taking us away. We're not trying to pay attention to the breath and we have this conflict with, at work that keeps pulling us away or keeps pulling us away or some strong desire or some strong aversion that arises. But because we have some level of tranquility, it's a lot easier for the mind to get settled and then get really focused, really concentrated. Having the mind concentrated and able to see what's going on more deeply in the moment is then a fantastic aid to having the mind be balanced. Uh, we have the expression in English, you know, my, I, you know, someone has an imbalanced mind, or you know, I lost my balance. You know, you know, I was right on the edge of you know managing a situation, and then I just lost my balance because, you know, somebody somebody said something to me, or the computer crashed one more time. And um, so, but to have a balanced mind or equanimous mind, then is um, the seventh of the factors of awakening. And it's a lot easier to have a balance of mind if the mind is collected and composed. The mind is concentrated in mindfulness and mindful. With a composed, concentrated mind, um, the mind is less likely to react for or against what the experience is, which is one of the definitions of equanimity. We're not for or against what's going on, but we just allow what's there to be there as it is. As we allow things to be there as, as, as they are, this seems also to be. This is also one of the optimal conditions for helping the mind to finally relax, not just on the surface of the mind, but deep at the very core of the mind, the deepest place where the mind holds on to identity, to being somebody, to holding on to whatever it holds on to at its core. In order to let that mind really relax deeply, at its core, the mind needs to be deeply settled, composed, equanimous, at peace. And then, finally, the mind can have the trust or the faith or the wisdom or the insight to see what's at the root of our suffering and then kind of relax there also. And that's a fantastic thing, to feel the very roots of the mind let go and relax. 
So the seven factors of awakening are very important in the tradition of Buddhism. They're considered by some people to be the sap that runs through the tree of Buddhism. The tree has many different branches, different schools of Buddhism, different traditions. But in all those different branches, the same sap runs through all of them. And it's the factors of awakening. That's what we all share. It's the qualities that get developed through any practice that we do in a deep, sincere way. So, um, that's the penultimate exercise in the Satipatthana Sutta. Next week, we'll do the last exercise, which is the climax, the most difficult one to understand, but the most profound. Also, the easiest one to understand. And if you don't understand it any other way, the most superficial one. It's up to you. But that's for next week. So may the seven factors of awakening follow you along this next week. And may you think about them and reflect on them for the week. Make them your top. Your seven days until next Monday, right? Maybe each day, take one of them. Does anyone need a refresher? Which seven they are? Let's do them all together. Then we'll, go, then we'll go home. Mindfulness, investigation, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. Go for it. 